Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. My name is Tracy Locke and I am the curator of Australian art here. And again, welcome to your some wonderful familiar faces in the crowd. So thank you so much for coming in for this talk today, which I realise I've kind of written a lot of notes, so hopefully it won't go for too long. First of all, I would like to say that I'm really honoured to have the opportunity to speak about this very important exhibition, uh, the work of Milton Moon, who is, and of course he is one of Australia's most important 20th century uh, potters, and of course the subject of this exquisite exhibition titled Crafting Modernism, curated by Rebecca Evans, very, very beautifully. What I would like to do as well is acknowledge that much of what I'm going to speak about today and share with you is based on content that has been made available to me by the artist's son, Damon Moon, and also based on information he's generously shared with me. And we've met many times over the course of a couple of years and also shared a wonderful email uh, form of communication and I'm grateful to him for being so open about his father. But in today's talk I've actually set myself the most impossible task and that is to identify in Milton Moon's work unseeable qualities and to try and make visible for you the invisible, and open his work today to broader interpretations. Uh, in doing so, I'll shed aspects on his life which have actually been somewhat obscured uh, from the public realm. So essentially, this talk today, this lunchtime talk, is about searching for an ineffable quality in his work. You all here know very well that Milton Moon's art and life is well documented. Um, there is an extensive public record of interviews and many critical reviews of his many exhibitions across the six decades of his career. The artist wrote really well as well and in great detail about his pottery practice, including an autobiography in 2010, uh, published by Wakefield Press called The Potter's Pilgrimage. The key themes of his art, such as his engagement with modernism, the Australian landscape, and Japanese aesthetics, are revisited and freshly investigated in this exhibition and, of course, in the accompanying book. In other words, we could, as his audience, presume we know that there, we know everything there is to know. Except, I suggest it seems to me something else is at play in his work, which hasn't fully been fully accounted for. This is my challenge I've set myself for today. I'm curious about identifying a quality in his work he relentlessly pursued, and yet this quality has never been fully considered. It is a quality at the very heart of his practice. That's something Milton Moon himself referred to as, and I quote, that flicker of something approaching truth 
and goodness. Mm, that was his driving force. So I'm turning our attention in this talk away from looking through the lens of modernism, nature or Japanese sensibilities to look through a different lens and attempt to see new influences and identify a quality previously unidentified, this ineffable effable quality, and again, what he referred to as, this is, he referred to it as that, in capitals, that. He referred to it as something. So it's something that is beyond words that he was really in pursuit of. So to, to achieve this, to explore these kind of inevitable qualities, I will touch on his spiritual journey and his commitment to modern Zen Buddhism, and I will suggest that this deeply informed his practice. So for fun, I thought it might be nice, to, however, to start with, well, who was Milton Moon? And how do we understand him and his creative impulse? Well, he had a way of taking everything to extremes um, in terms of whatever took his interest. He was interested, for example, in voice training. So, of course, he took that to uh, actually being employed as an ABC radio announcer. He was also very athletic. He was good at surfing, he was a talented footballer, and he even played at the MCG in um, a warm-up game at the, at the grand final. He also considered becoming a professor, professional boxer, um, and he thought he could use the moniker Mickey Moon. <laughs> he was also a passionate dog lover which many of us would share. He was involved in early forms of scuba diving in Australia. He was a member of the underwater research group of Queensland, and this club is still running. And of course, his reputation in the ceramics world saw him become an Archive South Australia advisor, and of course saw him nationally and officially recognised as a force in Australia as a teacher, a maker and an advocate of avant-garde Australian ceramics. So you get the feeling he had a sense of serious resolve and he understood good hard work and what that meant. But he was also born in 1926 and this he identified, in this, he identified himself as being born as a fire tiger. Now, what this means in terms of Chinese astrology is that he was really someone with immense energy. And in this way, for me, writing about him, learning about him, it explains his deep preoccupation with Zazen meditation, Zen Buddhism, which began actually really early in his life. And of course, many Western artists around the world in the 20th century were swept up in this movement, like John Cage, Agnes Martin, and also here in Australia, Robert Klippel, and, and even Ian Fairweather. 
However, again, this difference between Milton Moon and other people is the way he took things to extremes. So not only did he do what other Western artists did, which was read about Zen Buddhism and, and do some meditation, he actually studied it firsthand um, under the Zen master Kaburi Nanrai Sohaku, and he traced a direct lineage to the famous Japanese-American Zen scholar and writer D.T. Suzuki. So it was serious study. And um, his master, Milton Moon's master, was actually viewed as one of the finest of living Japanese Zen masters in Kyoto. So it's a very serious engagement. And of course, will throwing a pot is all about finding one's centre and his study and reading and meditation practice assisted with this work. It enabled him to focus and converge his attention. Now, Milton Moon admitted that his studies of Zen had an important effect on his later thinking. But what is never mentioned ever, 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 because I've read everything, what is never mentioned in Moon's writing is that his association with Japanese culture had been far deeper and longer than he ever led people believe. It is implied his first trip to Japan was in 1974, but in fact he'd been to Japan earlier. And what is not well known is that in 1943, at the age of 17, Milton Moon enlisted in the Navy. Uh, he persuaded his mother, by the way, to sign the documents. And he served until 1947. And during his service, he spent time in Japan. Unlike his contemporaries, Albert Tucker, Arthur Boyd, or Sidney Nolan, Moon never publicly spoke about his war service experience. Writing from Japan in 1974 as a Maya Foundation fellow, Moon reflected on the impression Japan had on him and he commented, I quote, no one leaves Japan unaltered. The thing is, what he didn't share with his readers was that he wasn't being changed during his 1974 visit. He'd actually been changed when he was there as a young man. Moon's first journey was uh, to Japan was in late 1946, post-war, and he was on the HMAS Kanimbla. And for me, it was very tempting to imagine his journey to be on board that ship. And as his service boat threaded through the islands of the Inland Sea on its way to Kudi and its retrieval mission, can you imagine what must have awaited them? He witnessed firsthand the effects of a country brutally taken to its knees, surrounded by the tra tragic ravages of war's aftermath. It was in this war-torn environment of orphans homeless veterans, chaos and salvaged detritus, that he recognised the beauty in a ceramic form. And he bought his first pot, a Satsuma pot from the 1600s, 
and he kept it for all of his life. Moon's Australian art associate, Albert Tucker, was in Hiroshima the same year, working as a correspondent. Haunted by the experience, Tucker later imprinted his memories on the charred and scarred faces of his well-known cratered head painting series. I argue there is a similar scorched earthiness that inhabits Milton Moon's own antipodine head, which is over here, just behind here. And further, there is other evidence of the influence of his wartime service. His role in, uh, in the Navy was a sick, as a sick bay attendant. And his ship participated in the repatriation of prisoners of war from New Guinea. And this is, again, absent from his story, but I believe the sensory traces of those experiences witnessing firsthand those individuals permeate his pottery. And indeed, it's fair to say that Milton Moon said that his art could express emotions and what his words could not do. And the subtle traces of the memories of post-war Japan can be seen, I believe, in these misshapen forms, in the weeping, blistered, cut, and wounded surfaces of his work. So when I was looking at these, when we were working on um, the research for the book and the exhibition, this set of series of, of folded vases and folded pots, once I had found out he had had that wartime experience, they suddenly made more sense to me, where he's literally cut the form and their forms sometimes appear to weep. One of the most powerful forms on this middle table is this work just over here, this round work, which to me it actually feels a bit like armour. It feels like a heavy helmet and reminds me of, of course, the great Henry Moore helmet head sculpture. So there is something, I believe, uh, it's just my opinion, that is coming through in this work that perhaps we haven't thought about before. There's also another clue in this space about his early interest in Japan, and it's over on this table. It's um, evidence uh, that he had a very early engagement with Zen Buddhism. It is this little vase here, dated 1962-63, just here. And when I was talking about some of these findings and these ideas with my colleague, Rusty Kelty, he said, Tracy, there's an object that he produced and there's a, a vase in the collection that actually has the Zen Buddhism symbol on it, the circle, the Enso. And on that vase, if you have a close look, you will see he's actually painted that Zen symbol onto the front of the vase. So again, 1962, 63, before he went to Japan, uh, is this clue to this very early interest. And of course, many of these radical forms in their glazes are very experimental. And it's 
these are these more experimental works are the ones that he was most pleased about because, I quote, as he said, they had done their own thing uh, in the firing process. And there's a wonderful um, text I'm going to read to you from Damon Moon. And we were talking about these elements about uh, Milton's work. And Milton shared this sort of little insight with me, and I'm going to, if you don't mind, I will read it to you because I think it says quite a lot. My father did experiment all the time, although mainly on clay, and often it was the result of the experiment of the experimentation. Uh, that that was the way he would find a new way forward by accidental happenings. This is particularly true of working with ceramics because in the gap between something going into the kiln and coming out, all sorts of weird and wonderful things can happen. As someone, this is Damon, uh, Milton Moon's son, who's of course had a long and wonderful career as a potter himself. He's referring to himself. As someone who has had a day job working in the ceramics industry in manufacturing, I know that the entire aim is to get things standardised to the point where they work and then you don't change a thing once you've got your formula. Damon says, Dad, on the other hand, would happily do very unconventional things and then stand back and see what happened. Much of what was included in his formal vocabulary were actually technical faults, um, but ones that he liked the look of. He had a wonderful ability to get something out of the kiln that had gone quite haywire, and instead of being disappointed because it hadn't turned out like he thought it would, he's quite chuffed at how it had done its own thing. And he says, my father would look at me and wink and say, they pay more for the mistakes. <laughs> so really lovely. But for Milton Moon, the measure of a great work of art remained enigmatic. Anything, even a humble, mundane bowl, can be described as art if its harmonic qualities rise above the banal, taking form into what he referred to, again, quote, this area, this mysterious area, so-called mysterious area of art. You can see I have set myself a challenge. So what we've established so far is that Milton Moon actually hid from the public record pretty much, not deliberately, but kind of cleverly, uh, the fact that he had a very powerful, profound experience of Japan. Then I discovered, as a result of Damon uh, and my lines of inquiry, he also had a secret friendship, a 15-year correspondent with a, what I, who I would recall as a bit of an anarchist. It's very exciting. Um, so, he actually had uh, this 15-year correspondence with an expatriate Australian poet by the name of Harold Stewart. Now, this 15-year body of correspondence has actually been embargoed, and recently Damon uh, organised permissions for me to read this 15 years of correspondence, and it, I tell you, is absolutely fascinating. 
So Harold Stewart was based in Kyoto. Now it's very personal because it gives insights into Milton Moon's thinking. He's able to share his ideas with Harold Stewart, who was also a Zen scholar. And in his communication with Stuart, he shares the challenge of expressing the ineffable. And he writes to Stuart, I really wish the other power would make my work for me. Elay Fuhr once wrote that art is in an intellectual effort and joy of the senses. It is also more than that, but that he refers to, is not so easy to express. Still, that is what the artist seeks. Now, interesting for me is this correspondent of Milton Moon had another life, which you will all be aware of. He's better known in Australia because in 1944, Stuart, his correspondent, was one of the two individuals who shot to national fame when they were revealed as the writers behind the notorious Earn Malley hoax. Uh, and they managed to skittle entirely, of course, Max Harris's career. So there he is in Kyoto, escaped from Australia. And of course, this individual and this topic of Max Harris's career in the Earn Malley hoax has been the subject of a recent film shown at the History Trust called Von Loves Her Modernist. So here we have uh, Milton Moon corresponding with this subversive poet over in Kyoto. Now, the incident, uh, of course, took hold in our Australian psyche, the Urn Mallee incident, and um, despite living this life of obscurity in Japan, Stuart never escaped the saga. And he referred to it, fun, I found this funny in the correspondence, he referred to it as um, the unburiable urn, <laughs> a play on the urn. Um, and regarding Australia, he was most, Harold Stewart was most happy to be distant and away from Australia. He regarded Australia as full of Philistines and Stewart acerbically observed when writing to Milton Moon, and I quote Stewart, every nation gets the poet it deserves. Greece had Homer, Rome had Virgil, Italy Dante, England Shakespeare and Milton, Germany Goethe, and Australia, Earn Malley. <laughs> but the point being is their regular letters show this incredible intellectual rigour between the two individuals. And in fact, Stuart assisted with Japanese language translations and interpretations for Milton Moon, the authentication of objects he was seeking out uh, ceramics and sourcing and posting Zen literature to Moon. Milton Moon, by the way, ended up with an incredibly important library of Zen, Zen books, which he later gifted to the Zen Studies Centre. Moon reciprocated in the letters with building support for Stuart's writings in Australia and keeping Stuart informed of developments in Australian culture and politics, which makes for a very interesting read. But in terms of the works before us here in this space, there are many which I feel allude to what referred to in his letter uh, to Stuart as other power. 
this search for the other power. And I'll just point out the works behind some of you here in the space on this plinth, this circular plinth. There are these round dome forms. I mean, how do you really describe them? But for me, they have a very, um, a very much a cosmic power to them. These works and their glazes and their forms are really, I think, referring to quite a celestial realm, another realm. Um, and I think they're really, I'm so thrilled they've been included in the exhibition. Um, I also do feel that if you thinking about Milton Moon and his exploration and his spiritual quest, works such as this, once you start to think about these aspects, this incredible work here, again, very cosmic in its glaze and its effects, and of course, this almost atomic um, glaze here. So we're seeing uh, different aspects to his work, I, I hope, but I guess to start to conclude is Moon understood the role of his sensory experience, that the role of sensory experiences and how they played into his work. It's interesting to read reviews of his exhibitions in a review by the excellent art writer Peter Ward. Some of you may remember Peter and his, his wonderful writing. All at once, Peter Ward referred to Milton Moon's work as muscular and rugged, and yet he also praised it for its sensuous effects. Uh, and at the same time, he also referred to Milton Moon as um, the Fred Williams of the pot, you know, because of these distillation of landscape elements into his work. Other critics such as Robert Hughes and James Gleeson, now I'm dropping these names because these are major figures in the Australian art world in the 20th century who took notice of Milton's work. They described his work as aggressive and gutsy, but you know, I guess we're coming back to that fire tiger character there. But there's always the yin and the yang. Um, so while you have this aggressive masculine kind of approach to his work or feeling about his work, Milton Moon is equally capable in works such as this up here on the wall of capturing, you know, uh, I guess, a plum blossom just blowing in the wind. So all of a sudden, you get this other side to him, an incredible sensitivity to the world around him. So I suggest here today his most significant contributions in clay surpass the concerns of the landscape and Japanese affiliations to gently impart ineffable expressions that allude to the grand mysteries of life. Now, again, to conclude, I found it fascinating the way that um, Milton Moon, you know, he mentions his interest in Zen practice in an interview in 1977, but it's not something that was he really spoke about much. And again, this kind of underground correspondence between Harold Stewart. What I'm trying to say is, it, in a way, it wasn't a safe space for artists to kind of be very open about their incredibly serious and deep commitment to exploring spiritual themes because everyone certainly for a long time was like 
don't mention that, don't talk about that. I've even had that experience when I've, um, in, in my career lifetime, it's like, don't go there, don't go there. And he didn't go there, but we're going there now. <laughs> um, but I'm, what was interesting for me is it wasn't until he was about 78 and the age of about 80 where he started to actually publish on Zen Buddhism, published little meditation books and they were, were really beautiful. So I think that's what I'm going to conclude and if, I, if you're all still with me, I thought I may indulge in a little private story and about my relationship with, with Milton Moon um, is that I, I was Adelaide born but I grew up in the Dunstan era, lucky me, and um, was very much brought up in an environment with an awareness of the arts and a, a valuing of the arts, very interested in it. And uh, in 1985, my parents were celebrating their 25th wedding anniversary, and I'm the, the youngest of three children, much younger than my older siblings, but I managed at 17 uh, to convince my older brother and sister to shell up and, and put some money towards a major platter by Milton Moon. I'm still persuading people to spend money on art, but I started very early. We, I drove my little Elsie Tirana through the switchback roads of the Adelaide Hills up to the Summertown studio, and I was a bit of a kind of secret groupie of Milton Moon, and, and purchased the platter. And that platter has been part of many dinner parties uh, throughout my family's life. And, and just recently, my parents have handed that platter over to me to enjoy. Uh, so I'm, I feel very connected to Milton Moon's journey and even the fact that you know, many people collected Milton Moon's work and have lived with his work. And I guess that's what I'm trying to say, is I feel very privileged that I was able to live with his work. I met him also later in his life, but I never actually, in his company, fessed up to being a past groupie. But he was very... He was a real gentleman and very um, mellow, and but just as clear and forceful as he was at, at his finest hours. So I feel, again, very proud to about the fact that the gallery has staged this exhibition and curated it in-house and that we get an opportunity to look at his work en masse and to grow and expand our understandings of his practice. Uh, so on that note, I will conclude finally. Thank you so much. Thank you.